Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the astrology of September of 2021. Joining me today are astrologers Austin Kopic and Rick Levine. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. hey. All right, I'm going to give a little bit of an overview first of the month of September, and then we will jump down into a week-by-week breakdown to give you an overview of the astrology of next month. So here's our little graphic for September. And here's our astrology calendar that lists the main ingresses and lunations and retrograde stations. So the first thing that happens is we have a new moon in Virgo on the 6th of September, followed by Venus ingressing into the sign of Scorpio on the 10th. Then the following week, Mars goes into Libra on the 14th of September. Our second lunation of the month is on the 20th, which is a Pisces full moon, followed, of course, by the sun's ingress into Libra on the 22nd, as it does around this time of the year, um, which is the full ingress in the northern hemisphere. And then finally, at the end of the month, Mercury stations retrograde in the sign of Libra on September 27th. Here's a circular chart that shows some of the motions of where the planets will start and where they will end up by the end of the month. And as we go through this episode, we'll do a more detailed breakdown of some of the closer inner planet um, sign ingresses and aspects during the course of the month. All right. Um, Hey, guys. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, Austin, as always, we've been doing this for like five years now. And Rick is joining us as a special guest co-host this month, filling in for Kelly, who's still moving back to Canada. Um, thanks for joining us, Rick. This is your first time doing a forecast. It is. What a pleasure. And you know why it's taking Kelly so long? It's a long swim. <laughs> That's true. Um, it's a little bit, not quite as long as the swim from Australia, but still Europe is no- You got it. You got it. Yeah. The Atlantic is still, you know, it's a tough one to uh, swim across. It's treacherous. For sure. So Rick, of course, famously has his own YouTube channel where he does- uh, monthly and weekly astrology forecast, which you can find at youtube.com slash Rick Levine. And Rick, actually, for years, you used to co-write uh, like the Barnes & Noble Year Ahead Astrology booklet, right? I remember seeing one time uh, going to like a Barnes & Noble, and there was like a cardboard cutout of you uh, at the book uh, bookstore, and I always wished that I got one of those. Do you still have one of those, or is that like a hot never, collector's? Never, never got one. Never got okay. one, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. We Jeff Jeff Jower and I did eight years of those, and they were brutal. Like they were one hundred and forty thousand words a year for, uh, you know, for an hour of fame and fortune. Yeah, well, and you were also doing like daily horoscopes for like astrology.com or something at the time, and so I remember tarot.com. I was writing twelve hundred words a day, seven days a week. I did that for seventeen years. That's insane. So it's insane. I remember uh, hanging out with you late at night during Kepler symposiums in the mid two thousands, and we would stay up late talking about astrology and and getting into deep conversations about like synchronicity and things like that. And then it would be two or three in the morning, and everyone's turning in, and you say, "I have to go off and write the horoscope column for for tomorrow at about like two or three in the morning." That would be me. Okay, so that is the that is your your accolades and your background going into doing this forecast. And Austin, of course, you've been we've been doing this together for for five years now. How are you feeling I believe about it's September? Six. six? Fifteen okay. to twenty-one. That's and true. It is twenty twenty-one. Yeah, and I did like the the junior version of Rick's grind, right? I wrote like four yearly almanacs, um, mm-hmm. and I only wrote a horoscope column for like six or you know, for eleven years. So, okay. 
Yeah, that's not quite as much, but still, still impressive. It's still um, a grind, and it takes a commitment. <laughs> it it is. Yeah. So in this episode, uh, I wanted to start first by talking about and doing a little retrospective of some of the interesting astrology that happened last month and some of the notable things that happened in the news that kind of fulfilled some of the things that we were talking about in the previous forecast, especially uh, some things that were grouped around Uranus stationing retrograde in Taurus around the middle of the month that seemed to coincide with some major changes and shakeups in the world. And then after that, we will get into the week-by-week breakdown of the astrology of September. How does that sound to you guys? Sounds Makes good. Sense. All right. So let's uh let's talk a little bit about August. There was like a few major things. And what was interesting to me is that Uranus stationed retrograde in Taurus on August 19th. And there were some major news stories that really seemed to tie into that. And it seemed to bring up some of the Saturn square Uranus themes that we've been talking about as the major outer planet activity this year. But that station of Uranus really seemed to reignite or re-energize that square uh, between Uranus and Saturn more towards the Uranus sort of chaos and destabilization side of things in some instances. So the big news story, of course, was what happened in Afghanistan and the sudden and unexpected fall of the Afghan government to the Taliban and the like exit, somewhat chaotic exit of the United States from Afghanistan after almost 20 years. So the news stories about this started happening and got really intense, and the government fell within four days of the Uranus station in mid-August. And I thought that was really striking and really um, sort of compelling in terms of some of those themes. Did you guys notice that or tie that into the Uranus station? Yeah, I did. And I also thought it was in a sort of interesting and very unexpected, uh, or it had an interesting and unexpected relationship to Venus's ingress into Libra, which happened in very much the same time period. And this is uh, interesting for two reasons. One, um, Uranus in Taurus is in a Venus ruled sign, and so is going to respond to the ruler of the sign being in a strong position. Um, and then two, uh, even though certainly my initial reaction and anyone's initial reaction is not, ah, what a, what a, what an act of, uh, Venus. At the same time, it is the end of a 20 year military occupation, right? This is, it's the end of a military action. And so it was interesting. It was, you know, it's, it's important to get important and useful to get beyond just the like raw stereotype archetype version of what a planet in its strength does. Yeah, I was also intrigued by the fact that not exactly to the day, but in a way, this is a close, not necessarily a graceful close, but it's a close to the Saturn Pluto opposition to conjunction because we invaded um, Afghanistan as a result of the September 11 Saturn-Pluto opposition trade tower bombings. And it's now that that has come to a close, even though we're technically after the the, uh, conjunction, it really kind of has been a process uh, that then just became abrupt with this Uranus station. That's such a good long cycle take on it, Rick. I love that. Yeah, because that was originally when the 
World Trade Center attacks and the September 11th uh, terrorist attacks occurred, that was the main thing that astrologers pointed to at the time was the relatively close within two degrees Saturn-Pluto opposition uh, from Pluto at 12 degrees of Sagittarius to Saturn at 14 degrees of Gemini that was happening at the time, especially because the United States Sibley chart has uh, 12 degrees of Sagittarius rising. So for many people, the chart or the ascendant of the United States is at 12 degrees of Sagittarius, and it was getting hit by that Pluto transit almost exactly on that on that very day. And remember, the Saturn-Pluto conjunction opposition cycle has tracked the the uh, centuries-long battle between Christianity and Islam. I mean, going all the way back to uh, Muhammad's uh, um, declaring Mecca the state of Islam. You know, all the the span the incursion of the. Um, uh, Islam, uh, the Muslims into Spain, and then the retaking of that. Those are all Saturn-Pluto conjunctions or oppositions. It's kind of crazy that this this theme is almost like a wildfire that becomes subdued and then goes underground, and then it flares up every few hundred years for uh, several cycles, and then it goes away again, and then it comes back. Hmm. So you can you can like track the Reconquista and all that using the Saturn year or Saturn Pluto cycle. Saturn Pluto. That's yeah. really interesting. I haven't looked at that. Yeah. So um, one of the things that came to mind though, just seeing because it, it seemed very like everybody knew the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan was not going to be graceful, and there was no like scenario where that was going to go super well. Uh, on a scale of like zero to ten, uh, in terms of you know comparing it to Vietnam, and there are a lot of analogies to what happened with the end and the winding down of the Vietnam War. Um, but it seemed like it caught uh, the U.S. government and a lot of people much more off guard. The sort of rapid um, advance and rapid fall of the the capital of Afghanistan, as well as the other um, provinces in Afghanistan to the Taliban over the course of like a basically a month. Um, leading up to mid-August, and it really brought to mind some of the the keywords or the main keyword it, it brought to mind for me was um, some of the things that we had talked about last month in connection with the Saturn Uranus square. Uh, and I'm looking for a little summary that I wrote about that, um, which is the sudden collapse of that which seemed stable. Revealing structures in our lives that were built on an unreliable foundation, and that's very similar. That was like the main thing that that kept coming up to me this month with that Uranus station in mid um, August. Not not just with the Afghanistan situation, but also with some other things. And I know previously, Austin, you used this phrase of stress testing, which turned out to be really really apt for that as well. I think. Right. It's the you know to use a bit of a cliche the. You know the house of cards that you have set up. If you shake the table a little bit, the whole thing falls, right? It's you know it's a good example of what would fail stress testing. And so um, now we know. But yeah, you're right. The um, the Afghanistan uh, situation is a really good example of Saturn Uranus dynamics. With Uranus being, um, I don't know if the leader, but being the more active of the two, doing a station, having the ruler go into a really strong place, et cetera, et cetera. And also getting, um, uh, I suppose it's we can't ignore the fact that Uranus got a nice trine from Mars, right? Right, and Uranus and Mars. If Uranus likes to shake shit up, Mars has no qualms with that. 
Right. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was funny about the Uranus station as well is there was another in the, in the Saturn-Uranus square and the reactivation of the Saturn-Uranus square through Uranus becoming sort of empowered through that retrograde station is you saw this coming up in like other areas of the world as well, including even just in like memes and fads. And one of the ones that I thought that was really funny was the um, milk crate challenge, which went viral on TikTok and like Twitter and other places where um, people had to, the challenge was that people would build like a period of uh, a pyramid of milk crates that were stacked up like stairs higher and higher. And that a person was supposed to walk across it all the way to the top and then walk down. But in many instances, it was completely unsteady the higher and higher they got, and they would it would topple over eventually because it wasn't on a very stable foundation, leading to sometimes like major injuries and major uh, bones being broken and other things like that. So that TikTok eventually on August 27th banned the trend and banned the uh, hashtag because there were so many injuries that were happening to people over the past few weeks. That's hilarious. When you also have the bovine tie-in with Uranus and Taurus and their milk crates. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, isn't astrology wonderful when it's so literal? Yeah, and it, it, and, and it doesn't need to, right? It, it's astrology winking at us. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's yeah. a lot of bull. <laughs> well, it's something we see over and over again, which is just, we've seen it for years now, which is just sometimes when there are these major outer planet uh, alignments that there are different ways in which the archetype of that alignment manifests in culture, sometimes in popular culture, sometimes in major world events, and sometimes in people's individual per personal lives in very highly specific ways. But there's always these weird echoes of the energy of the times that are happening if you pay attention to it in the news. It sort of reminds me of back in like 2016 where there, when there was that Saturn-Neptune square and we were marveling at this um, trend that took off where everybody was using like virtual or augmented reality to play like a Pokemon game that just became really popular for that one summer as that square was going exact. And then once it passed, it was sort of like the fad was no longer uh, around anymore. Right. The, the Saturn-Neptune troubling the boundaries between the real and the imaginary and people going on hunts for Pokemon at your post office or you know, in the middle of the park or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The boundary thing with Saturn is really important. I, I think it was Rob Hand who wrote somewhere, I'm not, I can't recall where, uh, that when Saturn and Uranus get together by a hard aspect, it's like an irrepressible force meets an immovable object and something's got to give. Right. Or there's like another Rob Hand quote that you oft I think you mentioned, Rick, which is something like um, Saturn is the you know the perception of the boundaries of reality. Oh, and that's is Saturn and Neptune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah what was that he, quote? I think that came. I think that was something he wrote in essays way, way, way back. And um, it's something like um, we we used to believe that Saturn was reality and Neptune was illusion. Whereas now we've learned that Neptune is reality and Saturn is the illusion there is one. Right. <laughs> That's funny. So I, like I, that. I would like to quote you, Rick, on Uranus. And I don't know if you ever wrote this down, but it was something you said to me in conversation, I don't know, 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago. I'm still saying it. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> it did have that kind of sound to it. 
Uh, but you said that Uranus is impossible, represents that which is impossible to repress. Ah, okay. Well, that's slightly different than the thing that I often say in class. I, I've been known to say, if you only write one thing down during this entire class or presentation, write this down. And that is, Uranus only has one job on its job description. And that is the instantaneous resolution of irresolvable opposites. Hmm. And of course, that has the paradox of Uranus built right into it. And the whole idea that, like, for example, when lightning strikes, it's because the positive and negative ions have nowhere to go, that it's reached a maximum tension. And at that moment of irresolvable, no way to resolve the tension, you know, crash. And in that one moment, in that one brief moment, there's, there's no tension there. Right, which is a great, which is a condensation of what happens with storms in general. Oh, yeah, right? yeah storms absolutely. are warm front, cold front, right? And it's them. A storm is the the airs resolving, the winds resolving their tension with each other. Yeah, and you know, and you know, Austin, that the warm front is usually higher in moisture, and mm-hmm. when you have moist air or moisture uh, agitating against itself, that creates negative ionization, which of course is positive. I mean, that feels good. So that, that's why waterfalls or the ocean or a good rainstorm, these are all energizing. And, that, and, and the cold, dry air mass, which is positive ions, which is like that agitates, that's, that's not good. That's the old phrase, an ill wind blows no good. And so when you get this, these two different electrical charges, the negative ions and the positive ions, the more they try to work it out, you know, it's that it, it, this is proof that the psychology axiom, if you have a problem, talk about it and work it out. Well, that's usually a good thing. But there are some things that the more you talk about, the worse it gets. The more you talk about it, the greater the tensions are. And that's what happens in a storm is that the negative and positive ions rub up against each other. The negative ions become more negative. The positive ions become more positive until it's it stretched so far that the lightning strikes instantaneous and although you know that lightning might strike any moment true to form with uranus you know something's going to happen but you don't know where and when right you can you can guess right like what's the tallest building with a metal thing on it but it could yeah, but be then the you tallest look building away and the lightning there. strikes over there yeah <laughs> yeah that's great yeah. So um, with the Uranus station, one of the things that it brought up for me is like the Afghan government fell early on like the, the 14th or the 15th, I think, of August. And this is a few days before Uranus technically like its exact station as we like to conceptualize it on the 19th. Um, but one of the things I think Ronnie Gale Dreyer pointed out on Twitter is just that a planet stationing is not an exact point because it's more like a curve. So really, once you get within like a few days or like a week of a planetary station, especially when it's really slow moving outer planet, it's pretty much already stationary because it's stopped uh, going anywhere in terms of its forward or backward motion in the zodiac. Yeah, I checked about Uranus when this was all unfolding, and Uranus was in the same within one degree of its station position for a week before and a week after. And what's interesting though, on the fourteenth, one minute, man, right? I'm sorry, what? 
You mean one minute? Of, I meant it was one minute. One, Thank you very okay. much. One minute. Got it. And 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 the other thing though about the thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth, leading up to the Uranus station, is that man, this was we were driving down Quincunx Lane. I mean, they were they were one Quincunx after another after another from from uh, you know Saturn to the um, Mercury, Mars, and from Venus back to Jupiter, and from the Sun to Neptune, and from and then Chiron on the other side of the um, Mars uh, Mercury. It was like total quincunx land, and it was like it was like just totally irritating. Driving down Quincunx Lane would be a great album name, I think, if anybody wants to take that uh, for for the future. Uh, I want to just jump back to the language of the a planet stationing being on a curve. Mm-hmm. What that uh, evoked for me immediately was um, like a race car on a racetrack doing a tight hairpin turn. And if you're in that if you're in that car, the centrifugal forces and the the g forces they generate like that's a moment of um, serious concentration for the driver. Things can spin out of control. Like it's a lot. There's a lot more to do there, and there's a lot more uh, potential energy there than um, when you're just on a straightaway. Yeah, yeah. So I really like that language. That's a good point, and um, this was also a, a retrograde station. So Uranus was, was moving forward, and then it, it slows down and does a U-turn, and begins moving backwards in the sign of Taurus, which is ruled by Venus. And I kept noticing um, things related to Venus coming up as being tied in with this. One of them that, that I'm thinking of right now, of course, that a lot of people were concerned about in terms of the Taliban coming back into power after 20 years was. The plight of of women, basically, in Afghanistan, and the Taliban historically being a really repressive regime, especially towards women, um, due to some of their religious background and other fundamentalist background, and if that wasn't also part of what was being indicated by that retrograde station in the sign of Taurus. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was something that was going on. Another. In other like weird, completely unrelated news, but also coinciding with that to the day, actually, it was within 24 hours of Uranus stationing retrograde on August 19th. Um, there was also this across social media like news report that that went out across Twitter and everywhere else saying that the website OnlyFans had announced that it would ban sexually explicit content, which then caused like an uproar among um, sex workers and other people that use the site for their income, which would suddenly be shut off as like thousands of people suddenly who used that to to make money or what have you would suddenly uh, that income would cease to like take place. Did you guys see that? Yeah, I saw that. I'm glad you brought that up because I saw that and I was like, really? I was like, I don't think Venus and Libra is going to let that happen. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the children, anybody who Anybody who works um, with desire, beauty, aesthetics, et cetera, et cetera, is at least an unofficial child of Venus. You're working within that profession, uh, within those range of professions. And I was like, really? I don't think Venus and Libra is going to let that slide. And so it was very interesting to see how after Venus cleared the aspect with Saturn, that was not going to be the case. Like That was reversed pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It was also the week that Cuomo resigned. Okay. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And another um, Venus another Venus as a, connection. Yeah, as a result of um 
bad actions within relationships yeah or attempting to relate in a way that was rather rude yeah yeah, yeah. um well, and one of the things that came up this month, I did the Venus episode with Becca Tarnas. One of the things that was mentioned in passing was just that Venus had historically in, in ancient texts and in traditional astrology been associated with uh, sex workers and with sex work in general. And it was interesting seeing such a big story tied in with that, with Uranus's station in the sign of Taurus. And one of the things that was also interesting and tied in about it is we talked about uh, Uranus and Taurus over the past few years and the gig economy. And people working as sort of like independent contractors for different things like, you know, uh, Lyft or Uber or different food delivery places or things like that and being self employed, but like working for some larger corporation and having a sort, certain sort of independence within that, but also being relying on that larger structure of whatever that company is and being subject to the whims of that company. Um, one of the things that was interesting about that story that I think is relevant to the long term is that it was the, Payment processors supposedly exactly. like the credit card credit card companies that were putting pressure on OnlyFans to stop um, making sexual content like available on their website, even though that's what it was designed for, uh, because they viewed that as like a higher risk thing or due to moral issues or or what have you. So the credit card companies put pressure on OnlyFans to change that policy. It caused huge backlash. Uh, they did end up walking it back. I think within a week or a week later, but the sort of the damage had been done. And I kind of wondered if that's not another large. This isn't part of a longer term issue. With um, one of the things we've talked about is Uranus and Taurus and the rise of like cryptocurrencies and things like that. And if that's not also tied in with part of this larger narrative in terms of the control that some of the centralized like banks and credit card companies have over certain businesses. Versus the decentralization of some sort of monetary things through cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with that analysis. And there was another thing that also happened that was not exactly that day, but it was bubbling. And and over the last week, the court case that declared that uh, Uber and Lyft drivers actually are employees that they can't get away with the the companies can't get away with kind of shuffling them off and saying that they're contractors. That was a another big deal. And in some ways, it was similar to the OnlyFans fiasco because again, it was driven by 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 Venus, by finances, by money. So this plays in perfectly to one other thing that I wanted to bring up, um, which is very earnest and Taurus <clears throat> and hits a, a theme that y'all have sort of been talking about, but we've also spoken of directly, which is Uranus and Taurus, especially in the context of the square with Saturn and labor, right? And like both the redefinition of labor um, in a different technological context, in the context of mid-corona, post-corona, whatever you want to call it. Um, but there are also two um, large um, strikes happening. Um, the workers of Frito-Lay and Nabisco um, have, by all reports, been um, you know, treated like mules for the last year or so. Um, and so there are like national level strikes beginning. And those are huge companies, right? Those are some of the most, um, uh, how should we say, popular crap factories. Like they make the, <laughs> like all of the bad food. Um, and so these, these are not like, you know, these are not small local issues. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the recurring themes is just 
many people realizing how unstable their foundations are, or in some instances, their financial foundations are. And in some instances, the sudden collapse and just kind of things, the floor falling out from underneath you, um, sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively, with some of the energies that are going on this year. And that'll be part of a continuing, ongoing narrative and story that we'll keep seeing because we've got a few more hits of Saturn and Uranus as they keep uh, going back and forth in their dance during the course of this year and on into 2022. Certainly on into 2022. You know, another thing about that Uranus and Taurus, and I think Austin um, kind of brought this up, but I want to just take it a, a step further, and that is the relationship to you, between Taurus and and basic needs, food. And um, obviously, aside from uh, the larger issue of climate crisis, the um, Colorado River was basically turned off, so to speak, or at least will be severely limited. And uh, there are places in the Central California Valley that like grow something like 80% of the cantaloupes in the United States. And the farmers are basically saying the crops are going to just die. They don't have the water for them. And so I think that this Uranus and Taurus, we're going to also see more of that. But that's another thing that's tied up with what's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. And the um, both the one thing we've talked on this podcast about with the Saturn Uranus is just uh, disruption of logistics, which is also another comfortable given. Of course, there will be cantaloupes at the supermarket, right? Of course, there will be cantaloupes. And then the food thing is overwhelming. And so what's interesting is all of this, uh, like in all of these cases, what is being stress tested for is how sustainable this thing or that thing is. And right? we're and failing we were, every one of the stress tests that comes Well, I, I don't I don't know about we, but the uh the okay. <laughs> the society <laughs> All right. is not, definitely not you failing. And, not, 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 not you and me. Yeah. I've got whale water, Rick. Um <laughs> But um, yeah, because if you were like, what is you know what would be a virtue of Taurus, right? Be like, oh, it's the fixed Earth sign that which is sustainable, that which can continue even under an immense amount of stress, yeah, right. And a stress test reveals the sustainability or lack thereof, right? Yeah, um, and so a lot of people are having that private stress test in their own lives, um. Why don't we why don't we jump? Why don't we transition at this point since we're 30 minutes into the show into talking about September and, and starting to break down the first week of the month? Uh, how does that sound? Sure. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to show I'll show the charts, but I also wanted to show a um, new graphic that was designed. Uh, shout out to Brenda Castaneda from Zartana.net or Zartana on Instagram, who um, is a graphic designer and astrologer, and she had designed some weekly astro forecast graphics. And I asked her to if we could incorporate some of those in the forecast, and she said sure. So we developed some specifically for this episode, just to give an overview and a more detailed breakdown of some of the astrology of September. So this is the weekly astro astro weather for September first through the fourth, and we kind of open up right away. At the very, very beginning of September, with that Mars Neptune opposition, where Mars in the later portions of Virgo opposes Neptune in Pisces. And it seems like that's one of the first uh, major aspects that we have to talk about in terms of opening up September, right? 
Uh, yeah, I agree. And as the proud owner of a natal Mars-opposed Neptune, <laughs> I can say good news, bad news. All right, give us the good news first, and then hit us with the bad news. Well, the 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 good news is that I, I think that there's an ability at times to manifest one's illusions, but they're for better and for worse. And I think that often the way things manifest are not the way you planned. And, and so there's almost like a juxtaposition of, um, of the energy of the, 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 who, the who, now it's not the who we are, it's the where we're going and the where we think we are going. And it's almost like we get all charged up to go somewhere, and I don't mean somewhere necessarily physically, it can be somewhere metaphysically, but we're all charged up to go there, and yet it doesn't, there doesn't turn out to be there. And I think that that's the, the downside. But I think that there's a potential, um, whenever Mars and Neptune get together, um, Grant Louis somewhere uh, wrote about Mars Neptune as um, the shape shifter. Because there's that sense of the physicality of Mars is impacted by the illusion, and an illusion isn't necessarily untrue, it's just something based upon a wish fulfillment, because illusions become, dreams become real. And, and in a way that Mars, I, uh, Bill Clinton had a Mars conjunct Neptune, and of course Venus was in the picture also. But it was like when he was on, he seemed 10 feet tall. And when he was not, he just seemed like he was invisible. And so I think this Mars-opposed Neptune can work either way. But I think it puts us in a very delicate place because what we believe actually can manifest whether or not it manifests the way we think it's going to. Yeah, uh, that's a really good summary. I, I did an ep episode on Neptune with Laurel Nowbendian last week. And we talked a lot about Neptune and the illusions that it brings, which can sometimes be deceptive or, or misleading. But then there's a flip side of that coin, which is that sometimes people need something to believe in, and sometimes that which is illusory is um, sort of a, a belief that carries you forward and can push you forward, even if it's not you know, correct to the T. Um, sometimes those things are necessary in order to inspire us to achieve great things. Yeah, William Blake wrote, what is now proved was once only imagined, and that's mm. Neptune. You know, we, 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 Neptune can certainly be complicated and difficult. Um, I, I like Caroline Casey, who says that imagination or Neptune lays the tracks for Saturn or the reality train to follow. Neptune creates a scaffolding that then we can build structure upon, not always, and again, it's often the dreams are either unreachable or just plain ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, I would say that, you know, a dream, what should I say, a dream, a dreamed reality, right, or uh, an imagined reality um, is proven later down the line to right. be true or false in terms of what's inside the Saturn fence, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if I imagine that I can do a thing and then 10 years later I do it, then, you know, then my, uh, my dreams look uh, prophetic, 
right? <laughs> but if I imagine I can do a thing and then uh, I fail spectacularly, then they like, look oh, well, pathetic. Well, that was just, he was just delusional. <laughs> then they look, right? it's prophetic or pathetic. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess that's the real danger with um, the potential downside of a Mars Neptune opposition is that Mars likes to have clear goals and objectives. And it's very good, especially at accomplishing uh, short term objectives, as long as it has a clear line of sight. Of what it needs to do so it can get it done. Uh, but Neptune uh, is not very good at giving a clear line of sight. And if anything, it kind of blurs things so that Mars doesn't necessarily know where it's going and can sort of be um, punching or reaching around in the dark, which is not going to be as effective in accomplishing those Mars type goals. Yeah, it's like it's like being in a boxing match blindfolded. Yeah, and so one thing I like about Mars-Neptune just on a quick transiting energetic level is that Neptune a lot of times just kind of blunts Mars. Um, I see the like the ambient level of aggro often go down when Neptune gets in Mars' way, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes you have that like um, taking up a dream with the Mars energy, especially more on other aspects, but um, there's a little bit of just mist or fog, um, aerosolized water, just putting out some of the Mars fire, which is often useful for just a dip in contention. Sometimes sometimes it appears as if Mars like disappears energetically for a few days um, before coming back. Yeah. Yeah. I can kind of sap uh, some of Mars energy and energeticness. Another good phrase, Mars-Neptune phrase that's coming to mind is the the fog of war, which is a you know used as a phrase, but that's a very good Mars-Neptune thing um, in terms of the actions that you can take as long as you have a clear sight line. But there's so many things that you don't know that might be around you uh, in terms of enemies lurking in the in the corner or in the dark. But there's something very interesting about this particular Mars opposing Neptune. Could you put the chart back up again for a, a moment, Chris? Is that possible? Because what's happening as Mars is opposing Neptune. We also have uh, the Moon opposing Pluto. And in fact, Mars is coming into a trine with, um, with, with Pluto. And so there's a bit of a, um, a, a kind of a good news wrapped around this opposition. If this was a natal chart, we would probably call that, or some people would call that a mystic rectangle, where you have the you know trine uh, the trine sextile trine sextile, you know, with the two planets in opposition. But there's a potential here to manifest it, and Mars, even though it might be a little bit lost or a lot lost with Neptune, is kind of getting some power from that trine to Pluto. Mm, that's a good point. Definitely. So it's moving into that trine over the next few days, which will eventually go exact. It looks like around the 5th or the 6th of September. Yeah. You know, interesting, this first few days, aside from the Mars opposing Neptune, we have several trines. We have Mercury trining Saturn, we have Mars trining Pluto, and we have Venus trining Jupiter. And then we have the Sun trining Uranus, all in within a four or five day period of time. And um, and it's almost like there's the potential for uh, something good. Wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> we need it. Yeah, that kind of brings us into our first um, lunation, basically, which happens very early in the month, and it's that new moon at 14 degrees of Virgo on the 6th of September. 
And that new moon at 14 Virgo is, is very closely trying to Uranus, which is at 14 degrees of Taurus. Yep. Yeah, so that's uh, I, I'm liking that that new moon. It is taking place with Mars, so there's like a Martian and a somewhat fiery quality to it. Um, but the but trine- Mars is partile, um, trying yeah to to Pluto also. I like this new moon a lot. Yeah. Uh, what are you thinking about it, Austin? Oh yeah, it's it's fine. I wish Mars wasn't there with it. Um, I, I have a slightly different take on like the first third of the month. I really like the Venus Mercury, which is there until the tenth. Um, you know, we've got Venus gets some gets boost from Jupiter and Mercury. Mercury plays nicely with Saturn, right? They're they're much more compatible than Venus and Saturn. You know, Mercury likes analysis and Saturn does structure. They're both capable of being, you know, dry um, without uh, their functions being impeded. But with Venus, you know, ruling the sign that Mercury's in, Mercury's in good hands. Um, there's just a lot of there's a lot of nice potentials for that um, that Venus Mercury. And uh, you know, again, the new moon, um, the new moon looks to Mercury, and Mercury's doing this thing with Venus. And so, and then everything goes back to Venus there. Um, and so I, I just like that as, um, you know, a wedge of um, generally positive potential. There's just a lot you can do with Venus and Mercury. You can, you know, it's good for arts and crafts and making peace and having fun, you know, like uh, pleasant and useful things. Yeah, and that that Mercury Saturn trine that you mentioned is one of our early aspects that goes exact on September fourth. Um, so that's one of the nicer aspects that's happening at the beginning of the month, and it actually takes place a few days before the lunation and that new moon in Virgo. Right at the same time that that new moon in Virgo happens, Mercury actually enters its shadow because ten degrees of Libra is the degree that it's later going to retrograde back to in October, which is kind of an interesting. Um, setting up or foreshadowing of events that are going to take place uh, later in the month when Mercury stations retrograde towards the end of September. Yeah, and it does that while it's um, while it's quincunxing um, Uranus, and that aspect repeats three times, both in on in on October 11th and on October 24th, because that is the beginning of that shadow period, and Uranus moves slow enough that that uh, Mercury is going to hit it by quincunx three times. Okay. So before we get on to Mercury, because there's a lot to tell there, I would just like to point out that, you know, this first 10 days of the month is the last time that Venus is going to rejoice for many, many, many months. Mm. Right. Because we're going to go Venus into Scorpio, where, you know, square Saturn opposite Uranus, not the most comfortable place. And then Sagittarius is okay there with the south node. Um, But then, most importantly, when we get Venus moving into Capricorn, it's Venus in Capricorn for long months and uh, for almost a month of conjunction with Pluto, right? So Venus, we're not going to have happy Venus for you know more than six months, and so that's part of why I'm uh, interested in taking advantage of the uh, the the. The, the perfumed wind of the <laughs> fair Venusian weather uh, while it's here because it's not coming around for quite some time. 
Yeah, and there's another thing that is it's easy to miss. If we could go back to the new moon chart for another moment, there's something really fascinating about this because if you look at the the um at, at the new moon chart, you have Mars at 24 degrees, almost 25, Venus at 25, Pluto at 24, 25, and Jupiter at 24, almost 25, and the, it's like crisscrossed um, trines. And the outer part of this is a quincunx. So this actually becomes a, a symmetrical trapezoid with a quincunx, a semi-sextile, a square, and a, a semi-sextile again. And all the midpoints all end up um, creating um, a, um, trine, sextile, trine. It's just a fascinating geometry in this because um, the, 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 the midpoint of Mars and Venus is 10 degrees of Libra, that's Mercury. The midpoint of Jupiter and Pluto is nine plus Aquarius, that's um, Saturn. And then the midpoint of Jupiter, I'm sorry, Ma yeah, Mars-Jupiter is nine degrees, 55 minutes Sagittarius, and the midpoint of Mercury-Pluto is 10, deg 10 degrees Sagittarius. And you take those midpoints, and they're all trine and sextile to one another. And I think that this new moon, uh, I, and, and again, a lot of it comes back to Venus. I agree with you, Austin. But um, I, I like this new moon. It's there. There's an irritating factor to it, though. But I think ultimately, there's some deep structure that really, really works out. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, and to sort of to intersecting with that point, um, you know, one of the ways I've been thinking about, especially the first half uh, of September, but you know, September to a certain degree overall, is um, you know, shoring things up, doing some building, like figuring out, um, you know, figuring out how to get ready for the next round of stress tests, because October gets progressively rougher and then November is, um, is a storm. And so, you know, you can't, um, <laughs> you know, you got to batten down the hatches for the storm. You can't do repairs and upgrades in the middle of a storm. And I think that, um, as you illustrated rather beautifully with the, the midpoints, uh, in addition to the aspects, um, there's some, like, that looks like trapezoid <laughs> trapezoid is a, um, a trapezoid is a very solid shape, right? You can place that on the ground and it's not going to get knocked over easily. Like building out whether it's, you know, whether it's business plans or financial arrangements or friendships and relationships or health stuff, like just building out some, you know, some nice, reliable trapezoids um, in September, mundane trapezoids as opposed to the mystical rectangle. Well, some you nice know, mundane trapezoids, I think. Would Austin, be what you're well saying built. is really true. Um, the, the Hubers point out that this particular trapezoid basically has trines internally. In other words, the, 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 the trines are between um, Mars and Pluto and Venus and Jupiter. That's internal. But yeah, external, yeah. there's a square, a semi-sextile, a quincunx, and a semi-sextile. That's not nice. That's, it's stable, but it's irritating as hell. It, it, it's like, as a matter of fact, the hubris call this particular pattern a trampoline, <laughs> you know, <laughs> be, because we're bouncing about, but internally we're stable. 
inwardly, we're we're idealistically, outwardly, we're hypersensitive and 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 stressed. Interesting. Yeah, that's and so just to riff on that, it's interesting to think in terms of the external angles of a shape, right? So if we took a grand cross, which is um, hard aspects inside and out, right? Two oppositions, four squares. Right. Um, and you you look at the side of which makes a box, right? I was watching, <clears throat> I got obsessed briefly with World War II era tanks on tank design <laughs> a couple months ago. And one of the things that came up that actually, I think, taught me something about aspects was sloped armor. If you want to have maximum impact, like penetration power against a surface, you're firing a shell or you're you're any exerting any force. If you have a right angle, if you have a 90 degree angle, that's that's maximum impact, right? Like that's the worst kind of car accident to get into is getting T-boned, right? Mm -hmm. right. Um, and so, you know, for military vehicles, you do sloped armor, right? Because things will tend to bink off. You either either trined or usually sextile armor, right? Because you're not allowing uh, you're not creating an angle that can be intersected with in a hostile way. You're creating a, fr it's literally a friendly angle. Um, and so. It's kind of like the difference between squares, sextiles, and trines, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. kind of exactly like that, right? Kind of exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad you brought up the, one of the things you've mentioned in passing, Rick, was the Venus-Jupiter trine, which is one of the other characteristics of this new moon. Because there's something very affirming about that that's like saying yes to or uh, firming up plans in a very positive and sort of optimistic way. But then at the same time, Venus is also squaring Pluto. So there's also this um, intense or obsessive quality to uh, some of that new moon energy and some of the Venus energy at the time, which is a little, little bit complicated. Yeah, it's a complicated, it's a complicated new moon. And, um, you know, it's, it's easy to look at this new moon and go new moon trining Uranus. Wow. There'll be change that'll make things happen in a way that, you know, might move us in a better direction ultimately. But then when you start looking at the complexity of that Mars, Pluto, Venus, Pluto, Venus, Jupiter, and the, um, Jupiter, Mars quincunx, all of a sudden this becomes a lot more complicated. Well, so about the um, the moon, the sun and moon exactly trying Uranus, right? We talk about <clears throat> Uranus as initiating change or or catalyzing change. Catalyzing is one of my favorite words for Uranus. Good word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, there, there's also part of that that dance is um, adapting to changes that have already happened, mm. right? And I see a trine especially as a very Oh, I see what's happening here. I'm going to make these changes in relationship to the changes that already happen, right? That, that process of like change begetting change, right? Oh, I have a new job. I have to, now I have to wake up at a different time. So I'm going to rearrange my evening, right? Or there was an earthquake. And so now, now I'm going to think about what I'm going to do with my next month, which is changed because of a, a sudden thing. And this, yeah, again, this 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 keeps coming back to me as like an opportunity to adapt to the data that's come in, and you know, build build that nice uh, that what is it the um, uh, a nice stable trapezoid uh, upon which to bounce, uh, <laughs> which to which is good bounce it you know uh, trampoline that, 
something which yeah something which has bounce like that's shock absorbers and there's also the mercury opposition to chiron in this mix too it's a complicated dance yeah and i also noticed that we're halfway uh in halfway between in september when we hit this lunation the eclipse cycles um so we're three months since our last set of eclipses and the mutable signs, and we're about three months out from our next set of eclipses and mutable signs. So we're at the sort of midpoint between eclipses, which can sometimes be a little bit of a turning point as well uh, relative to whatever was started in the last set of eclipses and re relative to wherever that's heading in the next set that's coming up later this year. That was a cool graphic. Yeah, so that's from Archetypal Explorer, who's our sponsor this month, uh, which I'll get to later. But they have lots of cool graphics like that, such as this, which shows the uh, sun and moon conjunctions, especially when they get close in latitude and longitude, which is what eventually leads to an eclipse. Uh, all right, so one thing I, I should mention at this point, because it happens really early in the month when we're getting all of those nice combinations. Um, with planets in Libra, especially with Venus in Libra and with Mercury in, in Libra, is our electional chart, our auspicious election for this month, um, which actually takes place, um, I believe, on September 9th, 2021, around 6.15 p.m. with 24 Aquarius rising. So we're taking advantage of a triple conjunction of Mercury, the Moon, and Venus uh, in the sign of, of Libra. So here's the chart set for Denver roughly. So this is going to be an Aquarius rising chart. You want to adjust the chart for your location on September 9th until the ascendant is at about 24 degrees of Aquarius. And if you put the ascendant at 24 Aquarius in your location, then Jupiter should be exactly conjunct the ascendant in this chart in a day chart. Um, so you have an Aquarius rising chart. Saturn is the ruler of the ascendant, which is still retrograde, but is in its domicile in the first whole sign house in a day chart, which is a pretty good ruler of the ascendant. Um, but instead of placing Saturn right on the ascendant, which can kind of like slow things down a little bit, we're placing Jupiter right on the ascendant in this electional chart. Um, the moon is up in Libra in the ninth whole sign house, and it's applying to a nice conjunction with Venus in the ninth house, which is in the very last degree of Libra at 29 degrees of Libra. Um, Mercury is also there in Libra at 13 degrees. It's just coming off of that nice trine with Saturn that Austin had mentioned previously. And the moon is technically enclosed uh, between the two benefics because it's separating from a trine with Jupiter and it's applying to a conjunction with Venus. In some locations, the moon may still be applying to a trine with Jupiter, but that's just as good. Uh, and that would be pretty good as well. So this is a good. Um, Jupiter election, a good Saturn election, a good ninth house election for education, philosophy, and other ninth house activities. It's not a very good chart for uh, shared finances and other eighth house topics, uh, shared resources, because it puts Mars in the eighth house in a day chart, which can lead to strife when it comes to shared resources or other people's money. Uh, but otherwise, it's a pretty solid chart as a general purpose election on September 9th. And we're doing it early in the month because then it's also kind of clear of Mercury's retrograde station, which happens later in September, which is a decidedly less great time to initiate new ventures and undertakings. Yeah, Mercury still has plenty of speed and brightness at this point. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's also the last period, not just before it gets um, retrograde, but also before Mars moves into Libra and sort of like joins the party and begins that co-presence with Mercury again, which will eventually culminate, I believe, in another conjunction eventually. Um, so it's just kind of Yay. a good period to take advantage of. Additionally, like you said, Austin, the last little bits of the the fragrant, the good smelling period of Venus in Libra. Yeah, this is kind of like a get it while you can <laughs> chart. Yeah, going out of business sale. <laughs> going into business sale, whatever. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, get it while the getting is good. So that is the main electional chart that we're highlighting this month. Uh, we also, Lisa Scheim and I picked out four or five other auspicious electional charts on the Auspicious Elections podcast this month, which is available through our page on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast, sign up for the $5 tier or any of the ones above that to get access to that podcast, which is available now. All right, so let's go back to that first and second week. We're really getting into the second week at this point of September, and we've covered the lunation. We've covered the lunation and its trine with um, Uranus. Um, where do we go after that at this point? I mean, eventually Venus does a few days later on Friday the tenth move into Scorpio, which yeah, is we the should sign. talk about the uh, the ingresses because it really changes things up. Yeah. The ingress of Venus in particular, or other ingresses, well, Venus and, and Mars. Mars. Yeah, right. Mars takes place just a couple of days later when it moves into Libra on Tuesday the fourteenth, and it, it's a it's a pretty significant vibe shift. Yeah, so vibe shift around late second week, early third week of September between the tenth and the fourteenth, basically. Right, right. So Venus goes from Libra into Scorpio, right. And you know, you know, we can kind of talk about the different sort of outfits that planets wear in signs and how they interact with the territory. You know, obviously Venus in Scorpio is much more, you know, classically um, goth couture. Um, but I think what's more important for the last couple, or for the at least the first couple of weeks of Venus in Libra, is that um, Venus is going to be um, playing the Saturn Uranus game. Right, Venus has to square Uranus. You mean the first couple of weeks of Venus in Scorpio, not Libra. Oh yeah, that's. I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't yeah. realize yeah, I yeah. misspoke. But yeah, yeah, in Scorpio, Venus has to play the Saturn Uranus game. Yeah. Right, and that's probably I would say that outweighs whatever you know essential dignity or lack thereof uh, Venus has in Scorpio. Yeah. Um, so what is just to set the foundation for that? What is Venus in Scorpio like? So it's Venus opposite to. Her domicile, or one of the traditional places um, associated with Venus, which is Taurus. So it's in the sign of Venus's uh, what some of the traditional texts call exile, or another word I've been using is antithesis, just because the sign opposite to a planet's domicile often has what we consider to be opposite or almost antithetical qualities to that planet. Um, so, what are some of the antithetical qualities that Venus has when it's moving through the sign of Scorpio? Well, so it, uh, Venus's time in Scorpio is an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting example of exile because you still have Venus as being a, a trigon lord or having some triplicity dignity in Scorpio because it's a water sign and Venus does water, right? And that's different than Aries, right? With hot, dry, you know, not a not a drop to drink. Um, and so Venus in Scorpio isn't 
lacking in sensitivity or feeling. But the idea is that there's sort of, um, I don't know, a, a, a macabre menagerie of things to enjoy or instead with, uh, with that preserved sensitivity be grossed out by. That's why, I, you know, I said goth, right? So it's like, I don't know, are graveyards beautiful? I, I might think so, but generally speaking, you know, the, 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 a lot of Scorpio significations, um, line up with what most people regard as like gross or repulsive or scary rather than like attractive, calming, harmony producing. Right. So Venus and Scorpio likes things that are, um, different than or not the things that most cons- most people would consider to be like appealing. Right. Uh, in a position to either be annoyed by or to find the, the hidden beauty within the potentially grotesque or, you know, macabre or frightening. Thomas More, the guy who wrote uh, The Planets Within, The Astrological Psychology of Marsilio Ficino, and wrote all the soul books. The first book he wrote was a book called Dark Eros. To me, that's <laughs> Venus and Scorpio. Uh, and dark isn't just bad. It's just the other side of the Venus and Taurus, where love is simple and lovely, and and it feels good, and there's sensual pleasure. And in Scorpio, they, one of the case histories that he used in that book on Dark Eros um, was Marquis de Sade. You know, there was he had pleasure. I'm not I'm not promoting this. I'm just saying that Venus in Scorpio has that that darkness attached to it, um, which of course can be transmuted like Scorpio does, but it's certainly the opposite of where Venus would prefer to be. And I like that you use the the term can be transmuted because I think I, I, I think that's it I think can be transmuted is a really good statement because <clears throat> I often hear difficult things spoken of, like difficult configurations in astrology spoken of as if they could not possibly be worked with, yeah. or whether they will be or, or on the contrary, that they will automatically um, you know, be transmuted. Right. If we're talking about transmutation or we're talking about alchemy, we're talking about a very conscious and, you know, classically like nitpicky process where the transmutation of, of a substance into something else doesn't just happen by itself and it doesn't happen without knowledge and effort. Right. I think of it like being in Olympics, being in Olympics and, and certain things like diving, you get two scores. You get a score on, um, the execution, and then you get a separate score on level of difficulty. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's the highest levels of difficulty that can create the highest overall scores if you execute them correctly. I think Venus and Scorpio is like that. I think some charts are like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. That's one of the things I like about astrology is just anything that can happen will happen, and there will be somebody that will manifest some version of a combination in a a constructive way, and there will be somebody that manifests that in a destructive way, as well as every possible shade of gray in between. So sometimes I think that's one of the charming things, but also one of the difficulties with older astrological texts is they'll have a tendency to put everything in terms of extremes and to just say, what the most extremely negative or possible manifestation of any combination is, and you're supposed to infer what the shades of gray are in between. 
So when it comes to Venus, though, traveling through Scorpio uh, over the next month or so, you pointed out, Austin, that it's first going to encounter one of its first encounters is going to be that square with Saturn in Aquarius, right? Yeah, and that's um, it's rough to be, you know, in the whatever the the graveyard gallery after um, you know after sort of cloud floating through Libra, and you know you're dropped into the cremation grounds, and it's like okay, well, there's something here, and then then you have Saturn, right, and then you have Uranus. And we can say, you know, honestly, when you encounter Saturn at this point, you're encountering a very stressed out Saturn who's been, you know, sort of waging a war with Uranus um, to try to keep things under control for at least the whole year. Yeah. And, you know, that Venus went, and I think you said this or alluded to it, that Venus squares the Saturn on September 16th and then opposes Uranus on the 23rd. And then at the very end of the month, Venus squares Jupiter. So yeah. Venus has her work cut out for her, for darn sure. Right. Run, running through the gauntlet or running across the, the milk crates, metaphoric, <laughs> metaphorically? <laughs> well, it's, it's the milk crates yeah. while Saturn's yelling at you. Yeah, to get off the milk crates. Well, and it's Venus. So Venus is like, I'm... I'm, I'm my primary role within the solar system is not to be the American Ninja Warrior. Um, it's to create works of uh, haunting and uplifting beauty and to redeem uh, creation through um, joy. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like, why, why am I on these milk crates and why are you shooting at me? Um, but yeah, it, on a practical level, like Venus Saturn is, you know, if you are, well, it's in, in, it, it, in whatever relationships a person in, especially if they are erotic or romantic to whatever degree, um, it's boundaries. Venus Saturn will like point at and probably poke at whatever boundaries aren't working perfectly mutually in a relationship. Yeah. Right. To the extent of sending someone running for the hills saying, none of this is worth it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. My boundary is actually the county line and you need to get the fuck out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so that's the first thing that Venus runs into in in a Scorp in Scorpio is that hard boundary or wall with Saturn and that can have like a dampening or a cooling effect on Venus and on Venus's otherwise tendency to want to like merge things to suddenly run into a wall where Saturn is pushing it away or is saying no to something that Venus otherwise wants to be doing. But then it's it's weird that we shift from that very quickly to a very opposite energy of a much more freeing and a much more destabilizing, but also liberatory energy of Venus separating from Saturn and then immediately applying to that opposition with Uranus in Taurus. Right. And so that's an interesting set of days. That's what, around a week? Yeah, the um, 16th through the 23rd. Yeah. Right. Where we have Venus between the rays of Saturn and Uranus, right? Between the structural requirements and um, the various changes, right? Like maybe we throw it all, you know, maybe we throw out all the old rules and rewrite them from the beginning. Maybe we just, you know, um, rewrite this one thing, you know, but it, it's, there's that like uncertainty of like, what do we change? What should change? Like what, you know, it's the factor that is in a sense, calling for a rewrite or a rebuild of the Saturn walls or structure. Right. Or even the, you know, Venus hitting Saturn and there being like a 
a boundary, but and a no, and even like a rejection or the rejection or loss of a relationship in some sense. But out of that, Venus then walks into Uranus and starts to experience um, a freeing from those restrictions of Saturn, and instead maybe it's the you know being liberated by being suddenly single and not having those restrictions holding it back. And well, what is it? What is it so, like in that context? Yeah. So I just want to say so. I think Uranus plays well with Venus in some ways, but Uranus often liberates um, Venus from relationship itself, which is not always uh, positive or what Venus wanted. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a difference between like being liberated from the shitty parts of a given bond and just being liberated from the whole relationship. Right? There's like babies and bathwater uh, happening there. Yeah, um, which. Initially, it might seem um, liberating, but then at some point, there might be like a looking back and a sort of wistfulness of the support and the sort of structure that the the relationship itself gave. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and into the into this mix, there's a number of other trines that happen in between and around those squares on, on the same day. Um, as Venus squares Saturn, um, that same day on the 16th, the sun is trining Pluto. And then Mercury trines Jupiter just a few days later, followed by Mars trining Saturn. And so it's really interesting because although the Venus stuff is really difficult, it's almost like there's some place to go, um, but not to Venus. Right. Well, I, I like that because especially with that Mercury Jupiter trying, yeah, we're we're really looking at like okay, so not feeling very good about this, but you know what are the what kind of situation do the planets give us to work it out? Mercury Jupiter in air signs is um, opening the airwaves for you know um, sort of fair minded communication, but we also have Mars having moved into Libra, right, making making trouble. As far as <laughs> you know, yeah. as far as delicately balanced situations go, yeah. And you know that Mercury trine, <clears throat> the Mercury trine Jupiter is another one of those aspects that, because of Mercury's retrograde, it will Mercury will trine Jupiter on September twenty, then again on October third while it's retrograding, and then again on Halloween on October thirty first on the third final um, pass. And so there's something about that Mercury trining Jupiter, because it extends over a period of a month and a week or so, that kind of gives us a little bit of um, additional blessing um, from that aspect. Yeah, it's like three opportunities to kind of figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll need it. Well, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, no you doubt. Don't, there's a lot to figure out. You don't usually figure things out on the first pass. The first pass is like your first attempt, but sometimes it takes that second and third attempt to get it right. Agreed. All right, so let's back up to um, the other ingress that we mentioned. So it's like Venus goes into Scorpio, and all of that begins that we've just been talking about on September 10th. The other major ingress that happens right after is Mars going into Libra on September 14th. Right. Um, so that's the other side of the coin, in some sense, compared to Venus going into Scorpio. Is Mars doing the same thing and moving into one of its opposite signs, or its uh, exile or its antithesis or what have you, because it's moving into a sign ruled by Venus, which often has 
opposite or antithetical qualities. And that's what Mars has to work with this month uh, once it makes that ingress for the entire second half of September. Well, yeah, and and that mutual reception is kind of interesting. Um, but what I find interesting about Mars in Libra, I always, it always makes me think of martial arts <laughs> because because Mars is obviously combat and martial, and um, and Venus, you know, relating to Libra. And so there's something, I mean, Mars doesn't like being in Libra, but there's something about that that can work if Mars can figure out a way um, to play nicely, to get along with others, which mm. it doesn't want to do. Right. Well, and that's part of the challenge with Mars and Libra is that, it, so, you know, as I said earlier, Libra is a place where things are like exquisitely and delicately balanced, right? Whether it's the design of a web page or the dynamic in a working relationship. And Mars doesn't do well with, um, you know, it doesn't do well with, um, delicate things that it can't bump into, right? And so it's like, how do you, on, on one side, you have, how do you keep Mars from fucking up all the nicely arranged Libra things? On the other side, it's like, well, how do you, what do you give Mars to do, right? So Mars doesn't go fucking crazy, right? And so when you were talking about the martial arts examples, I thought uh, the first thing that came to mind was um, capoeira, which is very beautiful um, and where you don't hit each other. There's like a timing and sparring practice, but uh, it's done uh, rhythmically to music. They're traditional instruments and you don't kick each other in the face. Right. And so it's like, oh, Mars can do that. It's a, it's a hell of a workout. There are handstands, there are flips, you know, there are high kicks, there's rhythm. Um, but, and there's, there's some contest, but it's not, uh, doesn't have the, um, you know, you, you don't have the, the crude impacts of the purely martial. Um, and so, yeah, just figuring out what to do with Mars that one is good for Mars and also preserves, um, all of the, all the things that Venus just set up in Libra. Right. Yeah, and and so that Mars doesn't just come in like a wrecking ball and knock all of that down. Right. Right. We don't we don't want the like the Iron Fist training Mars, um, which is like, yeah, I can punch through this wall where all these paintings are, are hanging. It's like that's amazing that you can do that. Please don't punch <laughs> through the wall. Right. Um, it's it's I, a ram in a china shop. You know, a bull, a bull, in a, you know, whatever. Yeah. Wielding, uh, going through like, um, giant halberd forms in a China shop where there's like an eight foot whirling blade and they're irreplaceable paintings on the wall. And there are, uh, delicate and beautiful statues set up perfectly. Yeah. So, so one of the shifts that we're, ha we're having then is we went from last month, we had the Mercury Mars conjunction in Virgo, which we talked about is like one of the metaphors that we used was editing and how a good editor can sort of use a scalpel to slice uh, a, a piece of written work and to improve it as a result of that incisive quality of Mars and the sort of constructive quality of when knowing when to cut something out or when to edit something out. That all good editors have. So here we're switching to a Mars Mercury co-presence, 
uh, especially because Mercury is going to slow down and retrograde and go back towards Mars earlier in Libra, and I think they'll meet up again. What's a better metaphor than for Mercury and Mars uh, conjoining in the sign of Libra compared to that that conjunction in the sign of Virgo? Hmm. Well, it, I mean, if you want to be viciously passive aggressive in a socially acceptable way, I suppose that it's um, strong for that. Viciously passive aggressive in a socially, yeah. So, uh, like, like <laughs> gossiping is a is a Mercury Mars and Libra thing, perhaps. Absolutely. Which is like this, but spreading. don't actually do that, right? Yeah, don't. We're not. <laughs> don't use the electional chart to gossip. That would be a funny use of electional astrology. Um, but no, that's a good that's a good metaphor or um, for that in terms of like the spreading of things because Libra is a, a social sign and all of the air signs are like more social signs. Um, so that's a good that's a good analogy. Yeah, I mean, it it could be someone or it could be a situation where someone is verbally aggressive. I mean, in a relationship. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And yeah, and it's definitely, I mean, it's going to sharpen tongues. Yeah. So Mars is ingress into uh, Libra, sharpening tongues for the rest of September and the second half of September, and then perhaps that Mercury station later in the month when Mercury stations retrograde. Just emphasizing that in terms of miscommunications that could lead to um, sort of verbal uh, sparring or ver verbal altercations of sorts, especially in relationships. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of a like uh, even more than the normal than than you would have with a standard Mercury retrograde or Mercury retrograde incoming situation. You really want to do the like think twice before you send the angry email. Um, think twice about maybe how you interpreted a communication. You know, maybe you reacted and they weren't, they didn't actually mean that, um, et cetera, et cetera. But like that, you know, think twice about what you say and what you hear. Um, I would say goes double with Mars co present with uh, Mercury during this period. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That it might, you might have that initial impulse to like fire off the, you know, the quick, sharp word, the sharply strongly worded, worded email. letter. Right. Um, yeah, and that, that it might feel good in the moment, or it might seem like the right thing to do that initial impulse, but you may regret and have to walk that back later. Yeah, and you might not want to. You might resist doing that. Yeah, that's always the hardest part is having to, to own up to that once you've made a mistake and you've done the impulsive thing that looked like the right call at the time, but but clearly in retrospect, you ended up being the jerk in that instance. Yeah, you can totally dig a hole with your tongue. Mm. Right. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going there. That that image just doesn't sit right. Well, no, it, I'm, it's an image that's supposed to discourage, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it, okay, it, it did. I'm not doing that. Good. Or repulse <laughs> might be the, the, the right term. Mm-hmm. Speaking of of repulse, so let's see. We're into the September twelfth through eighteenth time oh, frame. Um, sorry, Chris, we got to talk about the fact that um, Mars is basically invisible now. Mars is deeply combust. Um, you know, you might be able to just barely catch a hint of red um, with it being uh, where it is in the, on the uh, western horizon, like right at sunset if you have clear skies. But Mars is in the process of disappearing. Um, 
if not disappeared entirely. And we're going to have invisible Mars for quite some time, right? And that means that we're heading into the Mars-Sun conjunction, which has its own meaning, but as a piece of a cycle, it's exactly the halfway point between Mars retrogrades, right? And so that's that's a it's a very, you know, I think we all remember last year's Mars retrograde. Um, mm, yeah, <laughs> the uh, I fun. believe it was nineteen months in Aries. It was uh, Mars's retrograde, um, and so this is this is interesting. You know, we're we're gear. This is the halfway point. This is the the Kazemi, the um, being in the furnace heart of the sun for Mars. This is the end of a two-year cycle. This is the beginning of another two-year cycle. Um, you know, Mars disappears uh, on the western horizon, and in several weeks will reemerge um, and become visible again on the eastern horizon as morning Mars. Right. So. Because this is a longer cycle, right? It's not that everything about this cycle will become uh, will become clear in you know in in the few weeks or you know in in one moment. Um, but like this is the phase of Mars that we're in, right? It's sort of the the end of you know a series of you know a series of campaigns and adventures and challenges. Um, and I would say the you know for cohering with this, the right angle is looking back on the challenges you took on, the challenges that came and found you, the monsters you slew, the monsters that made off with, you know, your fingers and toes, and how you acted, what your tactics were, what, you know, um, what to learn from this series of campaigns, and, you know, um, I should say, and to keep an eye out, if we're talking about a couple weeks here, keep an eye out for what is the next, you know, what is the next uh, cycle of campaigns, adventures, and challenges? What do you think, Rick? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I would have said that as clearly as you, but I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Have anything to add to it? I think that, you know, that th this whole period of time. Um, I mean, like you say, it, Mars was, you know, Mars was in Aries almost as long as March lasted last year, <laughs> and 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 now that it's in the opposite sign, obviously um, uh, not thrilled about being so far away from you know from its home, um, and being lost behind the sun at the same time, um, yeah, is is not a happy camper. And that's a really good point that the um, this period of invisibility and the exact conjunction happens in Libra, right? And so I wonder, I wonder now if, and this makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking about it. Um, if some of this, like Mars conjunct the Sun, this reviewing a whole two year chunk, um, is going to have to do with grappling with feelings of powerlessness, right? Because Mars doesn't have much power in Libra, and I think that a lot of people have grappled with feelings of powerlessness over the last two years, right? There's been a lot of <clears throat> big malefic shit that, um, you know, a single individual couldn't turn the tide of more so than on average. Yeah. The other thing is that Mars under the beams 
does better and will have a tendency to act more behind the scenes. And some of the actions that take place won't be out in the open and won't be necessarily out front, but instead will be done in private and may only become clear later on. Yeah. And I think that that probably is supported by the fact that one of the things that Mars can do while it's in Libra is strategize. It may not be good at delivering a punch, but it's good about thinking when the best time to do it might be. And, um, and maybe that's because it can't, doesn't have the power or the, you know, the impetus to deliver that punch. And I, of course, I don't mean physically, I mean any sort of assertive way. And so I think we, that Mars does become doubly invisible. And I think that's great. It reminds me of um, um, uh, an MMA fighter whose son and Mars in, um, in Libra, and that's uh, Holly Holm, who famously defeated the um, seemingly invincible Ronda Rousey. And you know what Holly did and how Holly did that, and I think what that Mars son and Libra is good at is it's not so much about how cool are my punches. It's, it's the, you know, know thy enemy. It's to understand what you're up against, which is, you know, usually Mars is very self-focused and it's like, I'm going to work on my, my potency, my abilities, my whatever. But in Libra, there's that, um, what is, what are their abilities? What, what am I dealing with here? And whether that's, you know, uh, career challenges or relationship challenges or creative challenges, you know, whatever it is, whatever you're up against. Yeah, right? Austin, you're, you're the expert here in martial arts. But when I talked about Mars in Libra as a martial artist, I was kind of thinking maybe Aikido from what I know more than other um, other forms is you're really working with the energy of your opponent. You, you know that you're you're relying on your opponent to expend energy that you then make work on your behalf, and so you know that's that's kind of like how that Mars can actually be effective in an ineffective position. Yeah, I like that because a lot of the Aikido training is literally sensitivity and figure being able to anticipate. Um, because none of the Aikido, the, the classical Aikido moves aren't, um, you're not doing something to a person, you're dealing with what they're trying to do to you. And uh, again, in a sort of more rough and tumble context, if you watch the uh, short fight between Holly Holm and Ronda Rousey, it kind of looks like that Ronda Ronda with uh, Mars and Aries conjunct Rahu literally charges at her several times. And there's almost like a matador's ole, um, as, uh, <laughs> as, um, as Holly sidesteps and kind of gives her a, a push and Rhonda stumbles. It's, you know, it, it's not as pretty as like a rehearsed Aikido form, but very much the same, uh, very much that principle. Um, and I also like Aikido as the, uh, where we have the, the goal of the conflict is to stop the conflict rather than to triumph. Right. There, there are some contexts where you want to be the champion, right? Um, and the, the, the set parameters of a contest are, you know, either you are lying at their feet or they are lying at your feet. Um, whereas the set parameters, uh, the goal in Aikido and different arts as well is to extinguish the conflict itself so that there's, so nobody's fighting in more the, Libra, more Libra. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They uh, nobody nobody's fighting in the beautiful art studio, right? Because <laughs> that's the point. It's not to win the fight of the art studio. With the expensive it's, paintings on the wall. Yeah, it's that, stop that fighting in the art studio. Uh, I was looking through examples to see if I could find some good Mars, like natives with Mars and Libra examples, especially with combinations with Mercury and Libra and the Sun. And one of the funny ones I just found um, in searching through my database was. Uh, AOC or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has a Mercury-Mars Sun conjunction in Libra, and is famously um, just has some really sick burns on like Twitter when she's getting into verbal like sparring matches with other politicians and stuff like that. I think that's a really good example of some of that energy of a of a Mercury-Mars conjunction in Libra. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So the Mercury-Mars conjunction though in Libra or that co-presence. Could be a good, uh, good time for sick burns, but with the retrograde, <laughs> retrograde later on in the month, just be careful that it's not something that you're going to have to walk back because uh, that's that's not fun. Right. Don't um, don't spit into the wind. Don't spit hot fire into the wind. Yeah, or just know that it might come back around at some point. And even the wittiest thing, the thing that seems wittiest and the most. Um, uh, searing can sometimes come back like tenfold on you. Yeah. All right. So I think because that puts us at the halfway point through the month, um, I wanted to mention our sponsor since I've already showed one of his graphs, which is from archetypalexplorer.com. And this is an online astrology program. It's a subscription service that you can subscribe to, and it gives you the ability to look at your transits and to generate some pretty sweet transit graphs, both for mundane events. So for example, this is one of the graphs we've shown uh, showing the exact hits of the Saturn-Uranus square over the course of the year, and to put in different planets and things like that. So you can do that both for mundane events as well as for personal transits to your birth chart. And it also has the ability to generate some interpretations and some delineations that come from the work of Richard Tarnas. And he also recently integrated some delineations from the astrologer Ren Butler in his book, The Archetypal Universe. Um, so that's pretty cool. And it also gives you access to that entire book now online, which is available as part of Archetypal Explorer. So you can sign up for a free seven day trial by going to archetypalexplorer.com. And it gives you full access to the program so that you can generate charts and export them as images. And do all sorts of other fun stuff. So I definitely recommend checking that out. And I want to say thanks uh, to Kyle who makes the program because we've been using those graphics for the past year, and it really helps to visualize some of this stuff a lot better. All right. Um, so we're moving into the second half of September at this point, I believe, right? Well, I, we've been talking about the second half or the middle. We've been talking about the middle portion for about forty-five minutes. I would say we're yeah. we're 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 um, on our way to the finale. Yeah. So we've talked about Mars and Libra, which begins on September fourteenth. We mentioned Venus hitting that square with Saturn, which goes exact on Thursday the sixteenth. And also, and there's a Sun trine Pluto that exact same day, within just a right. few hours. Correct. Um, so then we start getting into eventually our second lunation of the month, which is a full moon in Pisces on the 20th of September, right? Yes. 
Yeah, and it's at the very end of Pisces, end of Virgo, end of Pisces. So I was looking at this and kind of like hemming and hawing. And then I realized I was you know, just thinking, I was like, okay, so what are the, what planets rule the sun and the moon in this lunation? And it's Mercury and Jupiter, Mercury for Virgo, Jupiter for Pisces. And then I said, oh goodness, they're trying. That's wonderful. So the um, they're exactly the, trying th that happy um, first of three trines that we were looking at for Mercury trying mm -hmm. or for mm -hmm. Mercury and Jupiter earlier also has the job of you know kind of stabilizing this lunation and I think making it um, a happier full moon <laughs> and a more fortuitous full moon than it might otherwise be. I don't think it's enough to make it a happy full moon, though. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it does it does ameliorate it um, a bit, but you have uh, you can't go to the Mercury Jupiter trine without noting that Mercury is also squaring Pluto, and although many astrologers don't use semi-sextiles in work like this, the fact of the matter is that a semi-sextile means that if a planet is nice to one, it's not nice to the other. And so we have the Mercury making this lovely trine to Jupiter while it's making a square square to Pluto. And, um, and I think that makes it a little bit more difficult. And on top of that, we also have the, um, you know, the, the full moon itself um, that is being semi-squared and sesquisquared by Uranus, and so there's almost like there's no out. What's interesting is is that the new moon had all these sweet, you know, trines all around, and this instead has it's not it's not a mystic rectangle. It's actually a misfit rectangle because we have a semi-square, sesquisquare, semi-square, sesquisquare. In other words, Uranus is a square and a half to the sun. The sun is a half a square to Venus. Venus is a square and a half to the moon. And then the moon is a half a square to, um, to, to, to Uranus again. And so there's like no easy out on, on the moon itself. The, the Mercury Jupiter is very cool. And thank you very much. I, you know, we need it. But I don't like this one nearly as much as and and you know and the Mercury uh, Jupiter it, it's one thirtieth of a degree it's two minutes of arc at the moment of the full moon so I mean it's nailed yeah that is extremely close um, Mercury's also six point two days away from stationing retrograde at this point so it's already slowing down and it's going to have you know because usually if we had a trine between Mercury and Jupiter it would zip by. But it's actually elongating that trine and also elongating the square with Pluto at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting in terms of outer planets that this full moon uh, in Pisces is, is pretty closely conjunct Neptune as well. It's seven degrees off, but that's the other sort of major energy that's giving a tinge to this full moon in Pisces. Agreed. So some of those themes we talked about uh, earlier in terms of Neptune, of things being illusory and sometimes that being problematic or other times that being a good thing. Yeah, well, uh, One thing I would say for Neptune and illusory is that sometimes it's wisest to just do something that you know is illusory but enjoy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Like instead of all this like, I don't know, um, confusing ontological judgment about what's real and what's not just being like yeah 
I'm going to play some video games on that new on that full moon, or like I'm going to read an imaginative novel, and I'm not going to pretend that it is a recounting of facts, right? You can enjoy the Neptune without you know having to worry about it. Is this going to be revealed to be false or this or that? Earlier earlier this month, Lisa and I were rewatching old movies for our movies for astrologers episode, and one of the ones that we watched was the first Matrix. And halfway through, uh, spoilers, but it's like a twenty-year-old movie at this point. But uh, like Cipher goes back into the Matrix, who becomes like the bad guy, and he he wants to be put back into the Matrix because he doesn't want to live in the real world. And he has the famous scene where he's like eating a steak, and he says, "I know this steak isn't real, and I know this is just like my brain synapses being fooled into thinking that it's real." Uh, but I don't care, and and that's you know what's most important is my sensory experience of this as something good instead of being subjected to the reality that everything is bad. Uh, so maybe that's a interesting analogy, or that's what what you're saying made me think of Austin well, I mean, that's, in terms that's of the choice. Like Two thirds of American culture right now is like play mm -hmm. a game on your phone, play a game on your computer, watch a movie, watch a show, watch YouTube. You know. Um, Taking a break from reality is certainly a good thing in moderation. In moderation, right? Yeah, but we've taken a break from reality culturally on a semi-permanent one-way street into some sort of schizophrenic cul-de-sac. Yeah, I don't know how many decades. <laughs> yeah, do you think the been... break has lasted? Break? <laughs> you know, um, I've begun to develop a notion that. Jupiter and and Neptune are actually the same planet. Mm. <laughs> that this that, is very Neptunian. No, wait. That 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 Neptune is simply Jupiter who's escaped from Saturn. That's all. That 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 Jupiter and Neptune are actually both expansive, but but Jupiter has to remain logical. It has to remain even in its opinions. It has to remain grounded enough to answer to dad or to logic or to Saturn or to, to an authority time. where Neptune is the exact same thing, but there's no one home to say, stop. Just right. a thought. No, I, I like that. Yeah. And that's Jupiter. that, that I think that also spotlights the advantage of Jupiter is that it's uh, something that uh, Jupiter brings things that can become real within time and space. Whereas Neptune right. is like, maybe yeah, we'll see. See, I did yeah, that but Saturn when Neptune, barrier. but but be, playing the devil's advocate, Austin, when Neptune manifests something, when it becomes real, it's way more awesome than whatever Jupiter, you know. Yeah, I would say that Neptune always needs help from oh, those yeah. Yeah, within yeah, 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 the yeah. within yeah. inside the Saturn fans. I totally, totally, totally agree. But it, yeah, it's I like, agree. It, it's 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 like um, a, um, a grand trine or some of the aspects that that I like to work with. They're totally valid. But they need a good square or something to anchor them into reality. Otherwise, they just f fly off and no one notices. Which That's a I good point, though, that there's a freedom component to both uh, Jupiter as well as Neptune. And Jupiter has that optimism, but it's a little bit more grounded in reality typically, whereas Neptune's optimism is boundless and often not well, grounded in and necessarily yeah, Jupiter can't get away with shit. Jupiter I, I also want to say this about Neptune because I don't think it gets talked about enough. Neptune is also limitless fear and paranoia yeah, yeah. and mm. pain. 
Yeah. Right. Like and the you, the negative sensitivity and negative dreaming is also completely unbounded. Like it's the you know it's the blood ocean. It's it you know it um yes and and I would say even the compassion that Neptune uh, usefully provides can sometimes be without limits. Yeah. Right. I when you start having compassion totally while you're reading a history book, it starts becoming you know a slaughterhouse nightmare. No matter what period you're reading or what part of the world, and that that's that Neptune unlimitedness, right? Well, you know the so, Neptune association with fear is, I mean, the word confusion etymologically means with melting together, you know. I mean, which is ideal if you're in love. <laughs> that that's confusion, but the problem is that that the ego don't like losing its perspective. It doesn't like it when Saturn's gone and there's no boundary. And it can't tell where I end and where you begin. And so so with Neptune, we have this existential fear that kicks in because we don't know we don't know where we are, when we are, who we are, because there's no boundary. Saturn's not there. Yeah. Fear. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's yeah. really nice etymology. Yeah. So Neptune ups the sensitivity and ups the compassion and um, that can be a positive thing and channeled into very good things, and sometimes that can become overly sensitive or or overly compassionate to the extent that you don't take care of your own needs or or what have you. So that's one of the things that's going to be highlighted with this full moon uh, taking place later in September, conjunct Neptune in Pisces on the twentieth of September. Um, Let's see if there's anything else we need to mention there. We mentioned the Mercury-Jupiter trine. Yeah, there's one other thing I'd like to mention, um, and that is the fact that Mercury, Saturn, and the moon. So we got a full moon to uh, Mercury, Saturn, I'm sorry, Mercury, the moon, and Pluto. Uh, let me do this again. Mercury, the moon, and Saturn. Sorry. Are, are really, really tight, all less, about a half a degree orb, septiles, so they got a septile triangle, three points on a seven-pointed star that creates a symmetry, and this, I believe, makes this particular full moon, again, more complicated than it appears. I mean, the, the moon to, um, to uh, Mercury is 22 minutes of orb, the the moon to saturn is 25 minutes of orb um and mercury to saturn is almost a degree it's 40 47 minutes of orb and so we have something here coming in from from that's unexplainable that that's alien that's that's other than normal and i think it puts a little bit of a mm, discomfort and maybe even a i don't want to say sinister but something that's hard to grasp that's at this full moon that, um, that I think is important to mention. That's funny. It reminds me of in late June when Neptune stationed, there was that like a uh, disclosure about- I was just thinking about that. Yeah, about aliens or about just like the yeah. government just was just like, yes, so we've identified 20 incidences of unidentified objects flying around and we have no idea what it is. And it was the confirmation of the unknown. I think that was the yeah. key word that we, we took from that. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, so that's part of the Neptune component. Um, before we move on from the Mercury trine Jupiter, um, we have the Mercury trine Jupiter and the, the sort of optim optimism of that. But what is a what is a Mercury Pluto square like? 
since we're not just dealing with the full moon and Mercury being trine Jupiter and square Pluto at the same time, but also Mercury really slowing down and grinding into that Pluto square at the same time. Yeah, it pretty much holds that position because this, when it turns retrograde, that square is perfected again on October 1st and then a third time on November 2nd. But what that really means is that between September 20th, 20th or so, all the way through somewhere around October 3rd, that Mercury is holding that position that is square Pluto. And this can be some intense um, verbiage. This can be some real um, you know, power plays um, verbally out in public that may bring some things out that we thought we knew and all of a sudden it's not true at all or we didn't know was true and all of a sudden we learn it. There's something here that that dredges things out and upward that I think can shift a little bit of a of, of a power game. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with the the dredging things out and upward. The combination of nearly simultaneous aspects from Pluto and Jupiter. Like Pluto is what, you know, is what's down there to be dredged yeah. um, or, you know, considered. But then Jupiter, you know, Jupiter has a very buoyant upward moving energy, like the uh, moving upward to that, like looking down from the clouds, like having a big perspective. Um, and so on, on, on a, on one level, I would just say, oh, Mercury, Pluto, like it brings paranoia to Mercury. It's like, oh, what is what is out there that I can't see that might be a problem? Whereas mm -hmm. Jupiter does the opposite and gives confidence in one's ability to deal with the situation, to you know, to to bring it uh, to a good place or whatever. And so there's a little bit of a cancellation or just sort, yeah, a mutual cancellation in terms of like the mindset right because we've got jupiter boying and and pluto paranoia ing um and that whole paranoying yeah paranoying <laughs> um and it, it's also worth noting that we have jupiter on a very strong star uh, for all of this we have jupiter um on speaker this whole time uh, and Spica, um, Spica does a good job of just um, reinforcing a lot of mercurial significations. There's like um, in a natal chart, it can give uh, a great talent for design or the sort of structural mathematical side of music. Like it, it's a very um, mercury boosting star. And so mer mercury, mercury has a lot Spica? of power. Oh, go ahead. Do you mean mercury conjunct Spica? Yeah. Did I, is that not what I said? Uh, you said Jupiter, so I just wanted to clarify. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Jupiter's on Deneb El Gedi. Um, but yeah, Mercury's on, I was co most concerned with, uh, with, with Spica um, and Mercury on Spica mm. because it, it's, it's, a, it's a very pro-Mercury, um, Mercury-supportive star, and Mercury's on it the whole time. So even though there are certainly challenges here, there's also a lot of Mercurial strength to sort through all this stuff. Right. Especially on a personal level, right? Collectives are yeah. always worse. Well, and, and Mercury, Pluto, that adding Pluto to it gives this compulsive quality to Mercury's desire to dredge those things up and to find um, the truth, which is a Jupiter signification. So maybe this sort of compulsive quality to figure things out that becomes intensified at that time, right at the start of a three week Mercury retrograde period, basically. 
Yeah. The problem, though, of course, is that we could become obsessed with something that's Neptunian, <laughs> that's right. just made up. Yeah, that's one of the problems with like a Mercury Pluto combinations or or Mercury and Scorpio stuff is the sensitivity to the subtle like hints and the subtle goings on behind the scenes can sometimes lend itself to in the dark sense like a paranoia of seeing um, things where they aren't happening or thinking the worst about things and jumping to conclusions about things that are unwarranted. And it, and it's almost like it can dig, it can dig a hole deep enough that then it can't get out. Right. Yeah. Because once you go down the the rabbit hole, uh, certain ways you can't like dig upwards in order to get yourself out. Exactly. Right. So that will be interesting. At the, that will just be opening up at the end of the September because we're talking about Mercury stationing there and sort of staying there, but that's just the beginning part of the process. Yeah, so let's look at the let's look at the station degree and then sort of the fate of the Mercury retrograde, so we can say a little bit about where things are headed at the end of uh, uh, December or at the end of September. Sure. So Mercury gets to twenty five degrees of um, Libra by September twenty third, twenty fourth, and then it's really slow, and then it stations on the twenty sixth and twenty seventh of September at twenty five Libra. And then it begins moving backwards. And what's interesting is by that point, the Sun and Mars are both, you know, moving pretty fast because the Sun's approaching Mars. So that means Mars is moving um, very swiftly in terms of its planetary motion. And both of them are are headed headlong into the conjunction with Mercury eventually in October. So that's part of where Mercury's heading. It's Merc- it's moving back into yeah. a triple conjunction with the Sun and Mars, which takes place on October 9th at 16 degrees of Libra. So, and that's only at the halfway point. That's that's the turning point, the halfway point in the Mercury retrograde cycle. Eventually, Mercury begins slowing down again and stations direct around October 18th and begins moving forward at 10 degrees of Libra. Yeah, so that um, all of that, you know, kind of reviewing the last war, Mars, Mars, Sun, halfway between um, uh, retrogrades, that like you know, uh, the end and beginning of a two-year cycle, the like the moment of that meeting between the Sun and Mars is attended by Mercury, right, and and amplified by Mercury. It's one yeah. of the funny things, especially in traditional texts, that the role that Mercury always played was to amplify whatever combinations it was with in terms of other planets. Hmm. Um, you know, one thing that's funny about this Mercury retrograde is there's already been like a Mercury retrograde reversal, which is the um, the OnlyFans thing, which was originally scheduled for October first, which is just a few days after Mercury stations retrograde. So there's already been like a somebody attempting to schedule something on a Mercury on the Mercury retrograde and then already having to walk it back. So um, that's something to be aware of, and I guess hopefully careful about for other people. Not you know doing things at the very beginning of that Mercury retrograde period that you have to walk back uh, for some reason if they were poorly planned out or not uh, sort of logical conclusions in terms of where to go. Yeah, and one thing I you know one thing I see with Mercury retrograde stuff and. 
You know, at working out good, bad, other is um, if you don't have to nail something to like this exact day, um, but you can be like, okay, let's see how this phase goes. Um, and you're, you know, you, you, you set yourself up with some flexibility to kind of follow what needs, to, what, what, is, what needs to be done as revealed by the Mercury retrograde. It tends to be a lot less upsetting and go a lot smoother than if you're like, no, I don't get, I don't, you know, I don't give a shit what Mercury's doing. It's got to happen on this day. And then, you know, you push like crazy and it still can't happen on that day or it happens. And then you have to redo it. Like building in some slack around mercury retrograde projects um oh yeah mercury mercury retrograde loves false urgency yeah oh yeah <laughs> i mean that's what it thrives on 90 percent of what people say is bad about mercury retrograde it all stems from that sense of like oh my god i gotta do something right now oh my god i gotta buy the car oh my god i gotta do this it, whatever it might be um oh shit i missed my turn i'll get off here oh now where am i that kind of you know yeah yeah, so the the feeling like this has to be done now and you have to take this action, but later you end up realizing when you end up having to return to and and take a second or a third attempt at doing the same thing that you could have just waited or had patience and then that would have allowed you to stop not have to do that thing several times but instead only do it once. Although that being said, uh one of the good things about Mercury retrograde, and I think one of the recurring lessons that I've learned about it is that Usually, the second or third time that you do the thing or you make the other attempts, you always do it better like the second or third time because you've had that one first failed attempt or that second failed attempt. So by the time you do it a third time, usually you you nail it at the end of the retrograde. Yeah, yeah. And so let me let me just give um, what has been a real life example that I have experienced many times. Um, so. If you play video games, especially if you play video games on a computer platform, like you download them from Steam, be like, oh, the launch date is blah, blah, blah. And then they launch and it's buggy as shit. And it gets a, an initial deluge of bad reviews, even though it's a good game. And then it takes them another two or three weeks to fix all that. And everybody's like, oh, okay, this is actually pretty good. But they had to deal with the stress and the negative press of... Um, you know, uh, th that came from launching at an unfinished state. Whereas, you know, if you imagine yourself like with the programmers and the, you know, the, the project leads and whatnot, be like, you know what? We have these problems instead of like getting all this, like, let's just delay the launch a little bit. And people might say, boo, but it's so much better than launching and getting the deluge of negative, uh, input and then having to fix it where it's not right. like good until the same date anyway. And you are doing it over again. Mercury thrives on false sense of urgency. What Mercury it makes Mercury sense, right? Retrograde. Mercury is the like fast, frantic planet. Yeah. What you just said also, Austin, is exactly what happened. Remember like ten years ago when they launched the Obamacare like healthcare.gov website and oh, yeah. it was it was rolled out and then it was just like a disaster and the website wasn't working and it kept crashing under the yep. weight of like thousands and hundreds of thousands of people trying to visit to sign up for healthcare because there was a time limit on it. And it became this whole fiasco that then was worked out during the course of the Mercury retrograde. And then eventually by the end of the retrograde, and once Mercury started getting under its out of its shadow, they had redone the website and fixed a bunch of the leaks or a bunch of the holes in it. And eventually it was working and people like signed up for healthcare. But the rollout itself 
they launched it like right as Mercury was stationing retrograde, so it was just kind of a disaster. That's a that's a wonderful yeah. example. It's like yeah. how much wiser would it have been just be like, you know what? It's gonna be another two weeks. Anything worth doing is worth doing right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that's what is being set up at the end of September in terms of the retrograde starting, but the we, sk- we skipped over the equinox. Was that intentional, or do we want to touch base on that, or did we kind of cover that enough with the full moon? Uh, yeah, we can touch base on that. So the sun moves into Libra on Wednesday, the twenty second. That's the same day, I believe, that the Mercury square Pluto yes uh, goes exact. Yeah. Let me put the chart up for that. So they um and it's also really close to the Venus opposing Uranus kind of uh offering hopefully a bit of uh resolution from the Venus square uh um square Saturn. Mm. So the sun moves into the sign of Libra, the Venus ruled sign, uh just as Venus herself is moving into the opposition with Uranus. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh how do you feel about that ingress into Libra, Rick. Well, you know, again, there's always good news and bad news. I mean, we we have the um, Mars pushing toward the trine with Saturn. That's close enough to matter. We have Mercury kind of hanging out, not quite retrograde, but but still trining Jupiter. But we have the Moon on the um, equinox itself, sweeping through a T square. As the moon um, kind of exacerbates just a few hours after the equinox, uh, it w- while Mercury is squaring Pluto, the moon will oppose Mercury and square Pluto. Um, so I don't know. It's you know again, there's good news and bad news. I'll let Austin decipher it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I hadn't sat down with the equinox chart yet. It's, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is so, you know, there's that T square. And then we also have Jupiter playing a pivotal role, right? Um, not only trining Mercury, but also in a happy little sextile with the moon and Aries. But yeah, we have and, the- and, you know, that point is actually um, uh, referred to, is, and I don't know where this comes from. I know it's modern, but uh, people refer to that as the point of Thales. It's almost like a T square. Like Pluto is at the apex, you know, hard aspect to the opposition of the moon and Mercury, but Jupiter is a release point. Jupiter basically takes the pressure off. It releases the energy. Um, and I don't know why it was named after Thales. All I know is a Greek, Greek mathematician. Um, you guys may know more about him than I do, but that Jupiter really does play a pivotal role. I'm agreeing with you. It took me a while to get there, but I, I agree with you, Austin. Yeah. Well, and so one thing, um, this this chart will be much more relevant for certain regions and countries than others. Um, you know, there's uh, there's a rule of thumb that if the Aries ingress chart uh, in a given location or for a given nation has a fixed sign, then that uh, that Aries ingress chart is good for thinking about the events of the entire year. But if it's uh, if it's got a cardinal or mutable rising. Um, then the, you're going to jump to the other, uh, you're going to jump either once to the, uh, the Libra ingress here or, uh, to every quarter, 
uh, depending on, you know, which sign the right, what kind of sign the rising's in. So this will be the operative chart, um, for, you know, the next three to six months for a number of different regions of the earth. Hmm. Interesting. You know, yeah, the, the old, like, um, uh, Persian inspired, uh, uh, like history of the world, uh, yearly chart stuff. So, yeah, so that is the ingress and the beginning of the fall season in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, then the Mercury retrograde, of course, starts on Monday the 27th. Uh, Sun trine Saturn goes exact on Wednesday the 29th. And on the very last day of the month, Venus squares Jupiter on the 30th of September. You slipped so, over Venus trining Neptune on the same day that the Sun trines Saturn, the 29th. That's an interesting day because there's, there's trines to Neptune and Saturn, which are actually ridiculously close to being semi-square. Yeah, there it is. So Venus hits 21 Scorpio on the 29th and trines Neptune at 21 Pisces. Right. Well, and we'll have a, a nice little grand water trine there with the, the moon in Cancer. That sounds um, like a very pleasant evening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there it is. So, Grand Water Trine at twenty-two, like a like a jacuzzi and a few cocktails. Yeah, and Venus hits is it almost partile with Jupiter at that point, squaring it. Yeah. So that, that's a nice little little end to the month on September thirtieth. Um, just as that Mercury retrograde is is ramping up, but hasn't really fully gotten into the full swing of things yet. Right. Wait, do you think? Rick, do you, oh, go ahead. Do you think that with on the thirtieth, with Venus squaring Jupiter, and the Sun sesqui squaring Jupiter, do you think it'll it's possible that it feels so good that we go out overindulging, that we do too much, that we take on too much, we say yes when we should have just said wait a minute. Mercury retrograde, you know. Well, I think that as you pointed out earlier, we've got a um, sun, a uh, nice sun trine Saturn there, mm -hmm. and sun in a in the the sign of Saturn's exaltation. That looks like a very productive day, followed yeah. by a very pleasant night to me. Okay, right. That sun Saturn uh, will help us. Uh, <laughs> I, I think will 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 carry us through our duties and obligations. Um, but then, you know, we, we have a nice night uh, to follow that. And maybe uh, it would be useful to hold that clarification in mind. But that, that looks like a nice setup for like, oh, I had a, one, I had a super productive day uh, or, you know, week up to this point. I will have a super enjoyable evening. Yeah, super okay. enjoyable. What, what, what time should I be there? Right. <laughs> As the sun sets beneath the horizon. Ah, that moment. Look, and then October 1st, there's like a hangover of like the moon goes into Libra, into Leo, and it opposes Saturn the next day on October 1st. Yeah, that, that, um, that pleasant night configuration is literally just that pleasant night. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I have a friend who calls that kind of aspect or that kind of astrology a pause in the disaster. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. The um, I, I I like to I like to find those moments in otherwise horrific periods of time, and it's like um, it's like when you see somebody's running a marathon, stop and like have a little water bottle, right? Just like mm -hmm. rehydrate a little bit. Um, and even though those moments 
don't characterize the actual period of time. They're actually in contradiction to them. Um, they're really important yeah. because it's that just like 10 seconds of rehydration is going to, you know, is going to change the, you know, your body's capacity to finish the rest of the marathon. Yeah. If we could take Coca-Cola out of this, that would be the pause that refreshes. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. Well, that brings us basically to the end of the month. And that's actually a really nice note to end on at the end of the month, that nice Grand Water Trine and a, a very refreshing Grand Water Trine. I think we, we would all agree. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, so that that brings us to the end of September. Is there any final thoughts or final words about the astrology of September before we wrap it up? This forecast. I, I would just say I would reemphasize what I said a couple times, which is like um, the first half. Like use that to get your shit together as much as possible, and any mm -hmm. any little any little things that you can see uh, from here that would be best scraped into a neat pile. First half of September is a really good time to do that. October and November and December, we're really, it's not quite like a roller coaster from here on out, but we've got a couple months where, uh, well, we've got several months in a row where there's not going to be a lot of opportunities to like slow down and put things back together and reimagine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's a little steep. Um, and so, you know, um, use use this functional enough time. Definitely, uh, when winter is coming, and there's some some intense astrology later this year. But the first little bit of September, that first week or so, is definitely uh, some nice stuff to get some things done before things start getting complicated later in the month. And I think the temptation is just because we've been going through such a difficult, crazy, uncertain time, the temptation is when we get a few days of like, oh, this is okay to just put our feet up and float downstream, yeah. you know, uh, right. and, and, and that's, that's the wrong time to do it. Right. Well, and it's like that in and of itself is restorative, but then to yeah. not use the whole time, right. Yeah. To just be in the yeah. inner tube. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Right. Right, or to be like, oh, this is how it is now. Crisis averted, right? Now, now things are just fine. They're going to be fine. Yeah, it's always part of an ongoing story. Um, so, but we'll have to leave it there to continue that story, since a lot of the stuff that gets started in September is going to carry through into October. So we'll and have to November. save. Yeah, yeah, in November. Yeah. So we'll have to save that for next month. Uh, what do the two of you have coming up? Uh, what do you do? You have anything coming up in September? Any events or anything, Rick? Um, I'm going to be participating in a weekend event at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, uh, and um, I'll be there with a few other uh, astrologers, including Anne Ortley and Maurice Fernandez, Catherine Andrin, and Kay Taylor. And uh, we got a nice little weekend program put together. It's not introductory, but it doesn't require a whole lot of astrology knowledge to get something out of the weekend because we, we've put together kind of a, a whole thing about the process of change, cultural change. And so uh, I'm looking forward to, to, to that. And um, yeah, that's pretty much the, you know, aside from my ongoing Patreon duties and, and, 
Uh, I don't know if you mentioned, but I do write a daily um, Planet Pulse, uh, which is on Instagram and Facebook, and its Instagram is Rick Levine Astrologer. You can always find me there. And um, yeah, and I'm busy. I just finished writing a uh, feature article, 5,000-word article for the Mountain Astrologer's December issue that'll be a 2022 forecast, and that was an interesting exercise. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I got going right now. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the astrology of November of 2022 to me, and I took a look at that chart, and that's pretty wild for oh the midterm God. elections. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Austin. I don't know if you've looked at this yet, but Mars is retrograde, and, uh, and on election day. Um, it's a full moon total lunar, a full moon eclipse, total eclipse. Um, and the full moon is partile conjunct Uranus square Saturn. We're, we're looking at 22, right, Chris? Yeah, we're looking yeah, at the sorry, midterm elections in 2022. And all I can say is that if we thought any of the other elections that we've had recently are strange, man, this one does, does not look promising. I mean... Uh, it does not look promising for just well, it, a plain it has, ordinary. It's, it's making promises. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look yeah. at look at the full moon lunar eclipse going exact at sixteen Taurus and it's conjunct Uranus at sixteen Taurus. Yeah, very cl- very closely. Yeah. yeah, twenty minutes less than that of orb. Good yeah. times. All right. Um, well, and people should also check out. I wanted to ruled sh- by sh- retrograde Mars. Right. Yeah, so that's something we'll have to talk about more in the year ahead forecast, and we'll have to check out your article, Rick, in the Mountain Astrologer later this year. I also want to give a shout out to your YouTube channel, which is really amazing, uh, at youtube.com slash Rick Levine. Actually, for- actually uh, correction, it's not slash, it's, you have to find it by going, by searching for Rick Levine Astrologer. It's a screwy naming thing, doesn't matter, but but it's not Rick Levine slash, I mean, it's not youtube.com slash Rick Levine. It's you go to YouTube and you do a search. Okay. Um, yeah. For Rick Levine Astrologer, that gets you there. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. Thanks. Sweet. And what do you have coming up in September, Austin? Well, um, so first, um, my self paced with um, like live session support year one curriculum is finally going to come out um, first 10 days. And uh, Sphere and Sundry has a release coming up. And this is a particular configuration of Mercury, Venus, and Jupiter, which in Vedic astrology makes a Sarasvati yoga. Um, and the idea is was to create some, do a little bit of planetary magic that would make you pretty witty and and wise, right? The idea is bringing the three together for eloquence and imagination um, and it being particularly good for good times and the arts. And so that's sort of codenamed Project Quicksilver Tongue at this point. I don't know if it'll launch with that name, um, but I'm excited for that to come out and I'm excited to open enrollment for my year one. Brilliant. That sounds amazing. Um, let's see. As for myself, I. Um, Last week, there was a group of astrologers that came in who are organizing the ESAR Astrology Conference that's going to take place here in Denver in August of 2022. And I started picking off uh, astrologers for interviews in the studio for some of the first in-person interviews that I've done since the pandemic hit a year and a half ago. So I'm pretty excited about that, and I'll be releasing some of those interviews and rolling out further interviews in the series on each of the planets over the course of the next month. 
Uh, I think Rick, you might be coming through Denver, and we're going to try I'm to do planning an, on it. Okay, an episode on Uranus, hopefully when that happens. Um, so if people want to support that work, of course, please be sure to sign up uh, for my page on Patreon, since that's what allows me to keep cranking out the episodes as quickly as I do. And other than that, my book on Hellenistic astrology is always available, and you can find it at hellenisticastrology.com/book, and it's available on Google Books or on Amazon. And it goes very nicely with my online course on Hellenistic Astrology, which is at theastrologyschool.com. All right, guys, I think that's it for our forecast for September. So thanks a lot for joining us as a co-host this month, Rick. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me, and and good to see you guys. I haven't seen you for as long as we've been in quarantine, so this was nice. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It'll be nice to get back together in person again next year, either at Norwalk in Seattle in May or at the ESAR conference in Denver in August. Yeah, totally. All right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Please be sure to like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube, or drop us a comment in the comment section below. Thanks to all the patrons who attended the live recording of this episode. We appreciate you. And that's it for this forecast. So we'll see you again next time. Bye. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to all the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, Kristen Otero, and Sanjay Srihari. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes or private subscriber-only podcast episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Special thanks also to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, AstroGold Astrology Software for the Mac operating system, which is available at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 for a 15% discount, the Portland School of Astrology, available at portlandastrology.org, AstroGold Astrology app for iPhone and Android, which is also available at astrogold.io, and finally, the Solar Fire Astrology Software program for Windows, which you can get from alabe.com and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount.